Hello, and welcome to the Enneagram in a Movie podcast, part of the Awareness to Action podcast network. This is the podcast that looks at one film in each episode and uses it to explain the nine types and three instinctual biases of the Enneagram model of personality. One movie, one type. My name is Mario Sakura, and I'll be joined by Maria Jose Munita and Tamara Zanatti. We are the principals of Awareness to Action International, a global consulting and training company that specializes in practical applications of the Enneagram. You can find out more about us and our work at awarenesstoaction.com. In the meantime, make some popcorn, sit back, and enjoy the show. Hi, everybody. Welcome to this episode of the Enneagram in a Movie podcast. I'm Mario Sicura here with Maria Jose Monita. Hi, Mario. Hi, Tamar. And with Tamar's Nettie. Hello, Mario. Hello, Mario Jose. So we have been through the three instinctual biases and through the nine strategies, looking at films related to each one. We had a couple of um, two-part episodes uh, with special guests, Tom Condon and uh, Russ Hudson. And today what we're going to look at is the subtypes in general. Right, we're going to look at what do we mean when we talk about subtypes, you know? So we talked about the two elements of the Enneagram, the instinctual bias and the strategies. And we've talked a little bit about subtypes as we go through. But now um, we're going to see what happens when these two things come together. This is an important topic, right? So I'm curious with the both of you, you know, because I think we all sort of learn the Enneagram as nine personality types. Right. But when we um, I'm curious with the, the from the two of you, how understanding the subtypes has affected your use and understanding of the Enneagram. Yeah, I, actually, for, for me, um, in the very beginning, when I started to learn the instinctual biases, um, it was not that much highlighted. And the more I understood it, the more it explained a very important phenomenon that I keep on seeing that there are people of the same, having the same preferred strategy, but they act a little bit different or sometimes too much different. So yeah. this, this explained it to me. And, and for myself, observing myself especially, that both the sides, the instinctual bias and the dom my dominant instinctual bias and my preferred strategies are somehow contradicting. So it explained to me some kind of... Uh, stress in certain situations that I kept on uh, observing myself. And actually, a feedback I kept on receiving from uh, especially uh, uh, my colleagues that work in, in previous work, that, that somehow I, I have contradicting actions. And I was always dismissing that, that somehow they don't like me or somehow they are picking on me and so on. But it explained that. Yeah. Good point. So we're going to talk about how sometimes these instinctual biases and these strategies reinforce each other and how sometimes they contradict each other. And you are one of those subtypes, Tamara, where those two things contradict each other. And so it creates this sort of uh, almost schizophrenic uh, personality style, right? And, you know, a very casual use of that term. Okay, <laughs> nothing personal here. Yeah, nothing personal, yeah. you nut. Yeah, I can uh, figure it out. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know. So it's just that you have these two different forces, right? So, uh, so Maria Jose, how about you? In my case, I think that it started to explain things that originally I learned by trying to kind of assigning some behaviors to the wings, 
So when I started truly understanding the subtypes, I realized that it was a clearer way to explain things that I could see in myself and other people, but the wings kind of fell short. They were not clear enough or I don't want to say structured enough, but it was just too, like maybe I'm like a one with a two wing, maybe a two, a one with a nine wing, and maybe both and maybe none. And and that was not enough for me to understand kind of where some of these behaviors were coming from. And with the subtypes, I, I started understanding myself and others so much better. And it made my, the assessing of other people also a lot easier. Yeah. So you bring up a really good point there, Maria Jose. And when we talk about this topic and Enneagram theory in general, we'll talk about the wings, right? I think that's uh, an interesting point that you're making there. So so what we're going to do as we go through this is give examples from the movies we have discussed. Okay. So we'll identify different characters and how their uh, subtype was on display, either in a contradictory way or a reinforcing way. Yeah, but before going to that, I would like to know your experience, Mario, with uh, uh, learning the instinctual biases and the subtypes, your personal experience. Oh, it was huge. I mean, you know, for years, I only thought about the nine types. And so the subtypes were there, you know, from my perspective, but the literature on them was not that great, right? A couple of sentences here and there. I think uh, probably Wisdom of the Enneagram by Riso and Hudson was the first time they were described in any depth, but still it didn't grab me a whole lot for a while. It was not until actually I was having a conversation with a scientist friend about these three so-called instincts And quite frankly, he took me to school on the science related to this stuff, right? And showed me how most of what I thought I knew and most of what I had learned was not really valid from a scientific perspective, that most of the literature on the instincts is rooted in some neo-Freudian ideas that are over 100 years old and frankly just don't hold up. So it wasn't until I really started exploring how these things made sense from a scientific perspective and started wrestling with the ideas a little bit that uh, I really started to see the power in this. The subtypes are what we get when we combine the strategy or the Enneagram type with the instinctual bias, okay? What other people call either the instinctual variant or the instinct, um, you know, any of those terms or, you know, it doesn't really matter what you call them. Uh, we call it an instinctual bias because it's a bias towards a particular area of instinctual needs. Okay? And this becomes a focus of attention. Now, when I started to understand this topic um, in the way that I do and started changing the names from self-preservation to preserving uh, social to navigating and uh, sexual or one-to-one to transmitting is when I really started to see the power in these ideas, particularly in the workplace. And I know the two of you have had that experience of seeing how powerful these ideas are in the workplace as well. So you want to comment on that? Sure. Uh, 
Look, they're really powerful. And I, I don't want to sound like I'm trying to sell anything, but it just, if I had to drop one of the two sides of the Enneagram, I would drop the types. I would drop the strategies and I would keep the instinctual biases because it's just, it explains so much of the basic stuff that gets people into trouble that messes up relationships at work and at home as well. It provides so many useful insights for people to grow and to get better and to improve relationships that, and it's so simple. So it has this power of simplicity, but then also very effective and useful, actionable. So it's, it's funny how it can explain so many of the issues that I see in in organizations. And uh, it gives me a quick, a very effective and quick way to address them. Really, when we talk about the subtypes, we we like to use a um, a yin and yang diagram or a tai chi that has the strategy on one side and the instinctual bias on the other because it shows the relationship of these two things. Now, in the traditional way of speaking about the subtypes, the idea is that the instinct okay it's this idea that there are three instincts which again is an idea that we disagree with there are many evolutionary adaptations that fall into three categories but anyway the idea is that humans have these three instincts and our enneagram vice or fixation interferes with the natural development or the natural expression of that instinct and this causes the subtype I guess that's a a fine way to look at it. But again, one of the fundamental errors is to think that there are these three instincts rather than many different adaptations going on, right? We take a different approach, and that approach is to think about the instinctual biases as areas of focus or kind of a system of values, right? Something we place value on. And the strategy, the nine strategies, represent how we go about achieving those values. Okay. So these two things work together independently, but they work together to help us kind of get our needs met. Yes. And I think that if you don't see it that way, and if you see it as 27 independent kind of units of kind of that describe personality, there's so much room for a mistake because it's just based on anecdotal information or uh, your information that could be biased from the beginning. I think that seeing it, as you were saying, with the yin and yang, with these two dimensions being combined and then then forming or creating or explaining these 27 combinations, I think that it's more solid. It's just uh, easier to understand, to explain, and to accurately identify who is better described by one of these 27 combinations. There's uh, an, an, an issue as well. Uh, you, you mentioned, Maria Jose, thinking about 27 different types, right? Independent types. And yes, this is these are variations and there are 27 of them. Now, we hear people sometimes saying, well, you can, you know, add the wings in there as well. And you get, let's see, what's 27 times to, let's see, carry the four, uh, 54 different versions of characters. And then other people would say, well, you can add these tri-types in as well or whatever. And you end up with all these different boxes of people. We have to watch 
the tendency to think of the Enneagram as an ontological model, right? Fixed characters, fixed beings. Ontology is the study of being. It means what a thing is. We approach this as a phenomenological model, right? That is what it what do people do? That's why we call it preserving, navigating, and transmitting rather than preservation, navigation, and transmission. That's why we call the strategy striving to feel a certain way, because there's a, a fluidity here. And it's about what people do rather than how people identify themselves. And this is one of the big reasons why so many people are mistyped, I think, because they say things like, well, I know I do all the things that this type does, but that's because, you know, my mother was this type or, you know, my father or I've done a lot of work on myself or whatever, but I'm really this type, okay? Well, no, you are what you do. And this is the way we think of these things. So what is it that a person does, not so much how do they perceive themselves, that matters to us? Okay. So it's we're talking about sets of dynamics at play with each other. Okay, And again, sometimes these dynamics reinforce each other. So you get some you know, profiles that are sort of the stereotype of the type the transmitting eight, for example, and others that are contradictory, like the transmitting nine with Tamara. Yeah, um, I, I like very much the yin and yang symbol because it uh, resembles a wave, you know, a wave and, uh, and the sea. Yeah. And yeah. that reminds me of the dynamics. I mean, when you look at waves, every time, according to the situation, you have different current, different forces together, they create something. So... So for me, it, it, it somehow reminds me that these two dimensions in dynamics all the time together inside me or inside others, and according to situation, they create certain pattern of thinking and certain behavior. And that, that mm -hmm. helps me a lot to, to understand. Yeah. And that's what the yin-yang diagram represents is fluidity, right? One thing blending into another. The reason there are the two little opposite colored dots in each half represents that the thing on one side always has a little bit of the thing on the other side in it. And there's this flow, right? There's this spinning that happens. And this can, you know, on the one hand, make assessing people's Enneagram types a lot more difficult when we start to realize that there is this fluidity, right? That there are these subtleties at play, but it makes us much more accurate when we understand the dynamics at play because we start to see beyond the superficial uh, characterizations of the different Enneagram types and even different subtypes and to start to see the nuance behind them. Yeah, and if we go back to the use of ver verbs or the ontological versus phenomenological, nah, whatever, how you say phenomenological, that. Phenomenological, yes. yes. Exactly that. It is a lot easier to change a behavior than to change yourself. And yes. now that doesn't mean that it's all superficial. I think that at the end of the day, what you want is to be more effective, more compassionate, to kind of operate better in your life and with the people that you care about. And in order to do that, you don't need to change who you are. You just have to change certain behaviors that are not effective or adaptive. And and when you see the Enneagram like that, it's a lot easier for people to think about becoming a better version of themselves. 
when it's not about changing yourself. Right. Yeah. yeah, So uh, on that point, I was delivering a 360 assessment to a client just yesterday, and it was some pretty rough feedback, right? I mean, the guy's a uh, transmitting three, very, very effective, very, very performance oriented, but terrible people skills, right? I mean, you know, when he doesn't get what he wants, he just becomes kind of a terror. And as we were talking, you know, I kept telling him, look, none of this means you're a bad person. It means you're ineffective in the way you're trying to get things done, right? And as he was wrapping his head around that, he walked away from a pretty rough assessment with a feeling of hope rather than despair, right? Because if we have this idea that we have to become something different from who we fundamentally are, we're doomed to failure, right? We're simply not going to do the work required to grow. So understanding this uh, as the things we do, uh, understanding the Enneagram as a verb, I think is transformational in a lot of ways. Can I share a personal uh, story here? I mean, lots of time I get this feedback that I'm somehow pressuring people. I mean, in in the beginning, I was surprised because this is not how I see myself. I see myself a compassionate person. And then when I started to contemplate on that, I mean, I have two sides, the transmitting part, which is really assertive, get wanting to really get things done. I mean, pushing and driving to towards certain objective, while the other side, which is my uh, striving to feel uh, peaceful, the, the strategy at point nine, that want things to be, you know, harmonious, uh, peaceful and all of that. So it's like these two sides looking at each other's and seeing, no, this is not me. And, and then, I mean, it was a moment of realization. Yeah, I do that. All what I need to do is like try to balance and try to be more effective by using these two sides. So, so to start with, let me accept this feedback because it's true. Next step, so maybe I need to be aware of more of how much assertive and how much effectiveness do I get by being assertive. I think each, you know, so Tamara, you're a transmitting nine. Maria Jose, you're a navigating one. I'm a navigating eight. And I think all three of us represent in our profiles a bit of tension between the two dynamics. I think yours, Tamara, is the most obvious, right? The the nine uh, strategy of striving to feel peaceful and the transmitting instinctual bias are in more tension than our two strategies. But still with Maria Jose, this the navigating one does not look like the typical sort of one, right? It's not the stereotype of the one and often gets misidentified and even misidentifies themselves because they see all these navigating elements that, you know, the navigating brings this willingness to compromise, willingness to, you know, see other points of view, whereas the one strategy sort of fights against that. Yeah, so so I think that it's the opposite to Tamar. Some people, not at home though, but some people think that I'm too nice sometimes and do not fit the stereotype of the one who is kind of more rigid and kind of strict. And I'm not like that all the time. Now, at home, I am more of that, but... Right. Yes. Yes. You're more the one at home. I get it. So, um, and you know, and, and even with me, right. I mean, um, yeah, with the people of, close to me. 
Right, of course. And, and and with me, it's the same sort of thing, right? Because of my navigating instinctual bias, I'm a little quieter, certainly, than a transmitting eight would be. I'm a little more subtle in my approach to things, um, a little more shy. And people think, well, you know, you're, you're nice. You can't be a, an eight, right? And then they get to know me and they say, oh, okay, now I see it, right? But it can take a little bit longer. Awareness to Action offers a unique approach to applying the Enneagram professionally with leaders and organizations, as well as for personal development. What makes us stand apart is our Enneagram expertise and focus on understanding human nature. We know people because we see people. And this is a skill set that can be taught and learned. Human nature is complex and simple at the same time. Our mission is to help people see clearly and act accordingly. Why? Because the ability to see ourselves and others clearly and honestly is essential. It enables us to act in more adaptive and useful ways. The Multicultural Team and Awareness to Action will help you learn tools and practices to become more aware and also to understand and engage people more effectively. Learn more at awarenesstoaction.com Join us at 2021 for exciting learning opportunities. So the, the uh, important thing to keep in mind is, again, this, this, the subtypes are filled with contradictions, and we have to be comfortable with those contradictions. And when we do our trainings, we always talk about the Walt Whitman quote from Leaves of Grass, where I think it's Leaves of Grass, where he says, do I contradict myself? Okay, I contradict myself. I am large. I contain multitudes. Right? And each of us does, right? And it's the moment we start falling into stereotypical thinking about the Enneagram, that it ceases to become a useful tool in, in our view. When I see people who I think, they might not be, but who I think are mistyped, the reasons they give, it's like, yeah, because, I don't know, navigating age, do this and do that. Yeah. And it's very specific things that they hung up right. on, uh, they hung up to, and it's just not effective to do it that way i think right it's kind of seeing these two dimensions and how they interact in the interplay between these two that helps me see that and it's more subtle than fixing on fixating on just one or two behaviors so what i'd like to talk about is that there are two kind of popular ideas in the enneagram literature that i think an understanding of the instinctual biases makes us look at in a different sort of way right the first one is this idea of a counter type okay so uh, claudio naranjo who really did you know a lot of work uh, on the Enneagram in general, really, I mean, we can look at him as probably the uh, most significant voice in the, the history of the Enneagram of personality as we know it, talked about this idea that within each set of subtypes, meaning each group of ones, each group of twos, each group of threes, there was one subtype that was a countertype, meaning that the um, the fixation actually sort of went the opposite way in relationship to the instinctual bias. So the fixation of, um, you know, lust or uh, of vengeance in the nine, I'm sorry, in the eight, when it comes to the, you know, navigating domain, the idea is that the social eight, you know, doesn't express lust in the same way. 
I, I, I really struggle with that idea. I think what happened was Naranjo was seeing something, but didn't quite have the framework to understand what he was really seeing. Okay. Uh, so the, the, the model that he created to deal with these dichotomies he saw was this idea of a countertype. And as we know through confirmation bias, once you have an idea in mind, you can find evidence to fit it, right? So once you say that, well, the navigating eight is the countertype of the eight, you can find evidence to prove that, right? But again, we think it's uh, there's a different thing going on. We think, again, it's not so much that one of the subtypes is a countertype. That feels too rigid, too fixed for me, right? Like, well, just why would that be? Right. I mean, you know, why? Uh, why only one in each, you know, category? Well, you know, uh, why always at least one in each category? Just, I, I really wrestle with that idea. For me, it just makes a lot more sense to see these things as a conflict between the instinctual bias and the strategy. Yeah. And it's like with the wings that sometimes is one, some authors think that the countertype is one, the others think that it's another one. And it has to do with what you take as the stereotype, and it depends on your definition. So it's messy. With that. It is messy. It, it, it's messy. And I, so this brings us to, you know, two more points. So first of all, the wings, but also you mentioned uh, different authors. And what, you know, we have to keep in mind when we're talking about the typical four, the typical five, whose description we're reading. Right, because sometimes they're different. And I even know that when I go back and look at Awareness to Action, the book that I wrote with Bob Talon, the dis- I can see the subtypes of the different types that we were describing, right? So when we're describing the eight, we're describing the navigating eight, right? When we're describing the nine, it uh, we're describing the navigating nine. Okay, so we have to be careful of who it is we're reading and pay attention to that. Now, one final point before we go into talking about the movies is the wings. Okay, so we do not teach wings. We're similar to um, kind of the Naranjo tradition in that, that we teach subtypes, but we don't teach wings. And our rationale for that is that it appears that the wing idea grew out of a group of people who were not familiar with the subtypes at the time. And they kind of took an idea that Oscar Echazo talked about, about wings, that was very different from how it's understood now. Uh, Sandra Matry talks about this in her book, The Spiritual Dimension of the Enneagram. And they created this way of trying to explain these differences. Okay. Um, and as Maria Jose was saying earlier, sometimes that's effective, sometimes not. I stopped teaching the wings a long, long time ago because I found that they actually ended up confusing people and muddying the waters a bit because they don't really fit everybody. My suspicion is that the wing idea originated in an attempt to take three phenomena and squeeze it into two buckets. Okay, uh, three sub, three instinctual biases into either one wing or the other, and so it works sometimes as a descriptive mechanism, and other times it doesn't, in my view. Okay, so um, and again, you know, there's a lot of people who think the wings are really, really valid. You know, our our, our friend Russ Hudson, who you know, and Tom Condon, who have been on the show, both teach wings, and um, it adds a lot to their work. 
our view is that, you know, again, as Occam said, you know, it is vain to do with more that which can be done with less, right? Meaning if you can explain something in two steps, don't add a third. So uh, any other comments on the, the uh, subtypes in general before we start giving examples? No, I'm looking forward for examples from movies that we have discussed right, during the previous uh, podcasts. All right. So the uh, I think what we'll do here is we'll talk about the reinforcing examples first, right? Kind of the stereotypes of the types and how that shows up. But the first thing I want to say is that when, uh, you know, the really best way to see three really clear subtypes of a particular type in action is to watch, you know, our favorite movie, The Godfather, right? Because you have three eights, Vito, Sonny, and Michael, who each have a different subtype. Now, I know we're going to get argument in some corners of the Enneagram world because that thinking that Michael is a five, there's this idea that, uh, you know, Al Pacino is an Enneagram type five, which he may well be. I don't know enough about him. I, you know, I haven't really studied him in order to understand whether he's a five or something else. But there is this view that Michael is a five. But, you know, I think he's a, a preserving eight. Right. So and which just happens to be a more quiet and intense eight, methodical, deliberate. But if the hallmark of an eight is somebody who's interested in power and vengeance, there's no more eightish character in the history of movies than Michael Corleone. Right. So, you know, it could be that maybe it's a five playing an eight. So he doesn't look as eightish as others do, right? But, you know, I think he looks clearly like an eight, right? There's that explosiveness in Michael that, you know, I've never seen in a five, right? Not in that sort of way. Yeah. And, Go ahead. and there's this strength and he's grounded and he's taking action. Yes. In a more detached way so that he can kind of plot the revenge effectively or his plans, but he's in no way detaching from the messiness of the world. I mean, he's watching it, but (laughs) he's creating it. He's creating the messiness. He's not avoiding it or detaching it. Yeah. Yeah. You don't detach from the messiness of life by agreeing to go shoot a police captain and, uh, you know, a mobster in a restaurant. Right. And uh, And it's not even agreeing because that's almost like passive. Right. He came up with that idea. Yes. So, uh, yeah. And, you know, there's that great, great, I don't know how to call it great (laughs) scene, but indicative scene where he is. It happens to be great. Okay. Yeah. Well, you know, when he tells Kay, right, when she tells him that you know she had an abortion, and he just explodes, right, and you know, and there's this just fury and rage that again feels so grounded in him, right? This does not come from, you know, we see fives kind of losing their cool, but it feels, it doesn't feel that scary, yeah. right? It it feels, you know, I don't know, unnatural. It feels really natural in Michael, right? Yeah. I mean, there's, you know, so, and he's so methodical, so deliberate, so, you know, 
planning and operational. And when I think of the preserving eight, I always think of operations leaders or procurement leaders in organizations, right? Who are just going to make sure that the trains run on time and are going to make sure that anybody who does not meet their deadlines and schedules are going to hear about it, right? And things are going to get done. Yeah, and, um, and, and and the idea of revenge is the theme of revenge keeps on coming back in the actions yeah. of Michael all the time. Yes. So it's it's like very, very core thing that he has to get revenge from whomever betrayed him or uh, did him something wrong or took something from his territory or so on. Yes. So, uh, so, so the preserving eight is, you know, I mean, it's clearly an eight, but uh, it's not the stereotype of the eight, which would be more of a Sonny Corleone played by James Caan, right? I've been, I, I, I'm a big James Caan fan, right? I mean, there are movies like uh, Fief, uh, the Michael Mann movie, which is just one of my all-time favorites, which is this just picture-perfect depiction of a transmitting eight character. But he almost always plays an eight. I really can't think of a role in which he didn't. But he is that explosive, aggressive, talkative, always in charge, right? Uh, you know, except when Vito's in the room, right? But any other time, it's like Sonny is dominating the space, right? And this is what we often think of as an eight, right? Somebody who's loud and outgoing and talkative and Right, you know, and uh, taking up all the space in the room. Michael impulsive. doesn't. Impulsive, right? Yeah. yeah, but I was thinking about that scene when uh, Michael is, and it would be so, <laughs> it's so tempting to talk about this and not talk about the other characters, but let's, uh, so let's finish with this idea. So when uh, Michael is saying that he will go and shoot the police officer, I mean, the, those two guys, Sonny is trying to stay in charge Yes. But Michael is not allowing it. So there's right. this power fight with Michael not being that vocal or that explosive, but he's still owning some space. Yes. And you can't you can see how Sonny just can't own the whole space with Michael there. Yes. Yes. But everybody else sort of fades into the background. Yes, you know, of and, course. And, and, and if that, Michael right. weren't there. I mean, Sonny would be in charge, of course. Uh, so now Vito, on the other hand, played by Marlon Brando, is a classic example of a navigating ape, right? And he's quieter and thoughtful and more contradictory, I think, right? Uh, and it's always interesting to me when we, uh, in our trainings, we'll use a clip from The Godfather as a quiz for people, you know, kind of a name that type sort of exercise. And I'm always amazed at how many people see him as a nine, uh, the, the Vito character, right? And, you know, and what they're missing is that, first of all, there's no issue around conflict with Vito, right? I mean, you know, Vito's tagline is, I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse, right? I mean, you know, Vito's got no issues around, you know, uh, getting along with people, but he's quieter and softer and more strategic and, um, you know, but, when it comes right down to it, he's the godfather, right? And, you know, this is the kind of thing we see with navigating eights as well. And so, uh, so that's a great example of being able to sort of compare how the instinctual bias and strategy can really create different characters in this way. And, uh, I always like to compare the strategy and the instinctual bias to height and weight, 
right? Uh, so for example, if you, you know, uh, we each have, you know, a certain height and we have a certain weight. And if you say that somebody is 200 pounds, which is probably about 85 or 90 kilograms, um, you know, okay, that tells me something. But if you tell me that they're six feet tall versus five feet tall, that tells me something different, right? These two people look very different from each other, even though they're both the same weight. And likewise, you can tell me somebody is six foot tall and weighs 150 pounds or they weigh 250 pounds. And yes, there's similar characteristics, but also very big differences to notice as well. Are you interested in learning more about our approach to the Enneagram? Go to awarenesstoaction.com and check out our certification program. We offer a clear, concise, business-friendly, and science-minded approach while maintaining the depth of traditional approaches to the system. At Awareness to Action International, we're the leading innovators in the theory and pragmatic applications of this system to all aspects of the work environment, including leadership and personal development, team building, diversity and culture, and managing change. However, this approach is not just for the business world. A lot of people who attend our trainings do so for their own self-development or spiritual growth. Our certification program is one of only a handful of curricula accredited as a school by the International Enneagram Association. It is currently being conducted virtually and combines live sessions with asynchronous learning. Again, find out more at awarenesstoaction.com. Sunny is a great example of an instance when the instinctual bias and the strategy are similar to each other. Okay. Another example that we visited in our podcast was Jerry Maguire. I think we agreed was probably a transmitting three yeah. sort of character. So tell me how those two qualities reinforced each other in Jerry Maguire. He's clearly wanting to succeed and to accomplish his goals and has goals in mind they, they change over time during the movie but but it's all about where he wants to go and how to get there and failing or not and so it's the theme is around that but also how he does it as well it's uh, the kind of goals and they all have to do with it's in a transmitting way. So it's almost like a legacy. He wants to change the way in which his job is done. And he wants to make his clients, which are sports people, famous and get visibility. So it's transmitting things in a successful or outstanding way. Which reinforces that, right? I mean, it's it's all the more about standing out, and it's all the more the more about transmitting. Is I, I you know, I, I I want, and he even talked, you know, his the, the whole thing that kicks off Jerry Maguire's trouble is writing this manifesto, right? You know, which is really what it was. He called it a mission statement, I think, but it was this big fat document of I have all these ideas on the way something could be, and I want to change the world. I want to change this industry. I want to make people stars. I want to make them, you know, wearing their own shoes, wearing their own shirt on a cereal box, you know, and all you know, all this sort of stuff, right? The memo. Uh, <laughs> yeah, the, the memo. Yes. Um, so, um, uh, so yeah, absolutely reinforce each other right now as whereas and, and there's also 
and, and I was just thinking that the fact that they that everyone called it a memo just diminished the vision that he had. So he saw this as something to change the world, as you were saying, and people kept calling it the memo, which is just... Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right. And, and, you know, the other thing that, you know, stood out to me about Jerry Maguire as we're talking about it now is his blindness around political skills, right? He was a great sales guy. He was a great inspirer of clients and that sort of thing. But he really didn't see what was happening around him. Unlike, say, the Jay Moore character, which is the guy that fired him. I forget his name in the movie, but that's what more of a that. Bob Sugar, yes, yes. That's more of a navigating three, right? The more politically astute, you know, kind of tell people what they want to hear, you, you know, and you maneuver through the machinations of of the organization to, you know, in a very political way, right? Yeah. Jerry Maguire was not political. Uh, he, he missed it. He didn't realize that he made a huge mistake. Well, he kind of realized he made a huge mistake, but he made it to begin with. And then he didn't realize what they were all going to do to him, uh, even though it was pretty clear. With the preserving three, we get a character, again, who's very different, often doesn't look like a three because they're not as image conscious as the stereotype. There's somebody who's methodical, work oriented, and, you know, uh, uh, more under the radar than the other two versions of the three. Yeah, and they are image conscious, but they don't draw attention as the others might i think and it's yeah the preserving thing and so when preservers preservers have transmitting as the zone of indifference so it's like they want to feel outstanding but without drawing too much attention so it's more conflicted yeah and less and less risk-taking than uh, transmitting three as well for sure. So For I mean, sure. I, I would say that preserving three would be more of protecting their successes versus uh, transmitting three would be looking for taking risks for new successes. Absolutely right. And we see this kind of across the board on preservers and navigators, right? Preservers tend to be more cautious and conservative with their resources, including money, whereas transmitters tend to be more, we'll say, abundance mindset, you know, with their resources and think, you know what, I'm going to splurge now and then I'll go make more, right? And I'll figure it out. I'm going to go, you know, here's an opportunity to do something really big. I'm going to, you know, achieve something. And then, you know, so we see transmitters either building huge empires or going bankrupt and, you know, then doing it over and over again right so um and, and actually um, this is this is somehow the story of jerry Maguire. i mean trying to build an empire and he took a, a big risk that he puts him in a very bad career situation <laughs> exactly exactly so another example of a profile that's kind of reinforcing the instinctual bias and the strategy being similar is our friend uh jeffrey lebowski the dude Okay. It's more um, of your friend than our friend. <laughs> <laughs> you need to watch the movie again, Maria Jose, oh, through again. These, new, these new lens of that, appreciation. That's a tough one, <laughs> watching the movie again. <laughs> Jerry, I'm sorry, Jeremy Maguire. The Big Lebowski is one of the towering achievements in the history of film. Um, although it is, uh, it's like whiskey, right? Um, you know, those who love it, love it. Those who don't think it. Tastes disgusting, right? So um, I'm a big, big Lebowski fan. But regardless whether or not we like the movie, it captures the idea of a nine. And certainly the Jeff Bridges character of the dude or uh, Jeffrey Lebowski 
you know, we think he's probably a navigating nine. Now, people might think, you know, because of his obsession over, um, you know, the rug in his room, which really, you know, <laughs> held the, tied the room together, because of his obsession about the rug, that he would be a preserving nine, right? But no. Nothing no. preserving about that home. <laughs> <laughs> exactly right. I mean, you know, this. <laughs> I had a. Uh, you know, just had a rug, but <laughs> that's about it. That's, that's right. So, you know, it's funny because I had a, uh, a client you know, some years ago who was a navigating nine, and this guy was very successful and he made a lot of money and provided, you know, nice things for his family and had a big house and all this stuff. But he said to me one time, you know, I could live in a cardboard box. It wouldn't matter to me, right? He had the house for his family and his wife and all that sort of thing. And that's what I keep thinking of when I think of, of uh, the Big Lebowski, right? That apartment was not much nicer than your average refrigerator box, right, uh, that uh, somebody might live in. So, But with Lebowski, the big issue was turning over of his agenda to people right of going along with peer pressure and with the flow of things and giving in to stronger personalities and then getting frustrated that he had done so and then almost jumping to an equally reckless behavior right and th this is something we can see in the navigating nine right they lose themselves in the group they lose themselves to other people's agendas now again the nine is an example of a type who it depends on whose description of the nine you're reading over whether or not you see this of the stereotype or not some people would have it as the more preserving version of the nine but almost nobody has the transmitting nine as their example of the stereotype of the nine right in fact we find that most transmitting nines are mistyped because it's so counter to the um, subtype right? yeah and i've not seen accurate descriptions of the transmitting nine to be honest or descriptions that fit what we think of the transmitting yeah. nine right right i would agree yeah so and to me although some of these combinations or subtypes um, are less intuitive or they contradict each other. To me, the contradiction of the nine, the transmitting nine, it's one of the biggest. Yeah, I remember uh, writing the chapter on the nine uh, for um, awareness to action many, many years ago. And uh, again, when you when I read it now, I can see that we are describing a navigating nine because that's what Bob was, right, and other people we knew. And um, I remember sharing it with a friend who was a transmitting nine. Now I knew he was a nine, but I didn't understand the subtypes too much at that point. And when I shared that chapter with him, he said, "That's not me at all." Right now, I knew he was a nine, but it just it just was not him. Right now. A few, you know, a, a few years ago, when I showed him the description of the transmitting nine, he said, "Oh my God, that's me to a T." Right. So um, again, it just goes to show you the, the the difference in this character. Okay. So um, one other uh, example popped to mind of a, sort of a stereotypical version, and it was the um, the woman from lost in translation the uh played by the actress anna faris who I, I forget her uh character's name it was a character based on cameron diaz right uh sofia coppola kind of had her knives out for cameron diaz when Ebony she wrote the script Wall? 
<laughs> well, she, that was her pseudonym. That, know, that was her. Yeah, that was her Good hotel name. name. Right, that was her hotel name. Right, uh, Evelyn Wall. And um, but she was just you, you know again this was the stereotype of the seven right talking all the time bouncing jumping from topic to topic needing attention right and this is what the standard perception of the seven is. But that's certainly not all sevens. And we're going to talk about an example of something that looks very different in a moment. But sevens who are transmitting sevens, I think, get identified fairly easily as sevens. But a lot of time, the preserving sevens and navigating sevens don't. Uh, so you can go back and look at those characters if you want to see examples of characters where the instinctual bias and the strategy really reinforce each other. So let's talk about some examples where the... Um, uh, the strategy and the instinctual bias contradict each other, uh, you know, to, to a degree, right? And make for a character that is harder to identify. Now, we already uh, talked about Vito Corleone, about how, again, the navigating bias and the striving to feel powerful are in tension with each other in the expression of uh, navigating aids behavior, right? So we don't need to, uh, to go through that yeah, one. And, and uh, actually, what I wanted to discuss here, I mean, even in this movie, you can see V2 in different modes. So the opening scene, you see this, uh, you know, uh, power. I mean, although it's really subtle, but it's really obvious in the whole scene and the way yeah. he's treating... Uh, uh, the under the undertaker is, is this, the undertaker yes the undertaker yes. or uh, 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 treating his men or they treat him so it's it's really full of power versus the discussion with uh, solozzo it was more subtle than that and uh, yeah. so this this explains to me how how these contradicting forces when they manifest they can manifest in different ways depending on situation I don't know what's your yeah. what's your uh, opinion on that. Oh, I, I, absolutely. I mean, you know that opening scene. I think for the first five minutes of the movie, Brando literally only moves his finger. Right. I mean, you know that's you know, and he plays with the cat a little bit. Right. But I mean, he's sitting there like a lizard on a rock. Right. You know. I mean, just you know, not really moving, and but still oozing, you know, authority and power. And then when he gets up and he, you know, kind of, um, you know, confronts the undertaker a little bit, you see a bit more of that explosiveness, right? And you see it even more when he talks to Johnny Fontaine, right? And Johnny Fontaine is the, uh, the actor or, you know, singer who, you know, comes to him for help. And, you know, first, uh, Vito is hugging him and kissing him and, you know, just, you know, how you doing? You know, tell me. And then he kind of grabs him by his lapels and shakes him and says, be a man, you know, and uh, really, you know, expresses anger and frustration, disappointment and power. I was thinking about how I'm going back to the Godfather, but how it is just so clear how they show the power or get angry at over the things of the domain, the instinctual domain that they care the most about. So mm -hmm. then be a man. It's like the role, what you're projecting, yeah. how you're being perceived. And yes. it drives him crazy that he's acting like a man. Yes. And, yes. and with Michael, it's all about the logistics and the family and kind of those things. And with Sonny, it's about growing the business and 
and fighting with other people. So it's, it is so clear that it's kind of power, but over dif- in different domains. Yeah. And frankly, it's about lust too with Sonny, yes. right? I mean, you know, Sonny's, I, I can't think of a polite word to describe him, but you know, Sonny, Sonny's a lustful guy, right? So, uh, you know, so transmitting lust, you know, is, is, is pretty clear there. Yeah. And, um, I think another really good example of a contradictory uh, character is again from the big Lebowski, but uh, Walter, his friend, right, uh, who is a transmitting six, who is you know, played by John Goodman, who is a very loud and aggressive character, right, who is, you know, who really causes all the trouble in the movie, right, comes up with these ideas to do stupid and dangerous things and, you know, pulls a gun on a fellow bowler at one point, right? And, you know, uh, but he's a six, right? I mean, he's somebody who's striving to feel secure, but he's a transmitting six. And in a lot of the Enneagram literature, we hear this talk about counterphobic sixes. And um, in our experiences, all sixes show some degree of counterphobia, meaning they feel fear and they react against it in an aggressive way. But the one that we see this the most in is the transmitting six. Okay, so the stereotype of the six is sort of a Woody Allenish character, right? Or more like uh, uh, the Albert Brooks character in Defending Your Life, somebody who's more obviously fearful. If you see Walter in The Big Lebowski, you're not going to think of Woody Allen in the same chain of thoughts. Yeah, I was thinking about that character, the uh, Defending Your Life character. No. Uh, that was more, as you say, a stereotypical one, but with uh, six. Walter, yeah. sorry, six, six. Yeah. Uh, but with Walter, so you could get confused by how aggressive he was. Right. I don't see how, but but I can understand <laughs> that you can get confused, right. yeah. but it's a less grounded aggressiveness. Yes. It's more, there's more anxiety behind yes. it. Yes. And and that to me it's a, kind of like something key when I'm trying to distinguish differentiate between a seven uh, an eight and a transmitting six. It's this anxiety that it's so visible. Yes. Yeah. Uh, although they could be equally or even more aggressive than an eight. Yeah. But it's kind of less focused or yeah it comes from a place of insecurity, yeah. right? I mean, so we talk about the six striving to feel secure. When they don't feel secure, they feel insecure. Okay. So in the transmitting six, we see this aggressiveness that's rooted in insecurity, which is not what we see in Vito, Michael, or Sonny. Okay. You know, of Mm. course, everybody gets afraid sometimes. Sonny, I mean, Michael was nervous when, you know, he was going to shoot Salazzo and the, the police captain, but you know, anybody would be, right? That doesn't mean he was a six because he was a little nervous before he was about to shoot two people in a restaurant. Just means he's human, okay? So, um, but, you know, but the transmitting sixes aggression tends to be driven by a lack of feeling secure. Yeah, and and it's obvious in in, uh, how they express the rationale of their actions. Like Walter is always expressing that there's a threat that he is... He wants really to fight against or yes. pre- prevent uh, the threat from. Yes. So he's like aggression is coming from a place of protection. Yes, yes. If we don't do this, then they will do that. 
to us, right? Is this kind of the theme that comes through? Okay. All right. So another character is um, the uh, Tom Hanks character in the movie Castaway. Right. So we used Castaway as a an example of the preserving instinctual bias. And um, when we discussed the movie, I think we agreed that he probably seemed like a preserving seven to us. Okay. And uh, I think in most movies, I see Tom Hanks plays a seven ish sort of character. You know, I, I read somewhere that Tom Hanks, you know, was a six, and I've read other places he was a, a nine or something. He strikes me as a seven. Right? I mean, just kind of a, a, a joyful, you know, happy kind of guy. And I think that came through in the movie Castaway. But his preserving instinctual bias made him look really one-ish in a lot of ways, right? I mean, if you think about the beginning of that movie, it's all about literally getting the trucks out on time, right? It's all about time. It's all about process. It's all about details. And it's not just because that's what his job was, although, of course, that would influence it, but he wouldn't this be in that is, job if, if he didn't care exa- about those things. Exactly right, or he wouldn't last in that job yeah. if he didn't, for sure. Right, and this is something we see in preserving sevens: is this real one-ish sort of behavior or behavior that can be interpreted as one-ish because there's a rigidity to it. There's a kind of an intensity about it. Things aren't going the way they should. There's a problem, right? They'll get nervous about being late. They'll get nervous about forgetting things. They'll get, you know, you know, and there there's, it's the combination of sort of that reliance of the support strategy at point one and the instinctual bias that if you look at them a certain way, you can mistake them for once. Yeah. This is something we see quite frequently that, um, you know, we have ones who are people who think they're ones, but the pieces just don't add up when you look at them, right? They're like a, they're like a happy one. Yes, you know? they're light. I you was know. going to say they're lighter, not happy, uh, but it could be seen from the outside. I agree. Yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> Yes, that was the wrong term to use, right? So, um, <laughs> but it is this, it's this, you know, I, I always think particularly those who would identify themselves as a preserving one, if they recognize the preserving, I, I always remember this, this uh, boss I I had some years ago who was a preserving one. And every time the group of us would go out to uh, for lunch, you know, kind of a business lunch or something, no matter what they put in front of her as a meal, right? She would order the meal. And no matter what they put in front of her, she would make what we all called the stink face, right? She would just automatically assume there's something wrong with it and I'm going to find it, right? So it's like somebody placed a pile of garbage in front of her, right? Was the look on her face until she thoroughly inspected it and realized, okay, everything's all right, right? And then she would feel content again, right? So that's it, you know, in the preserving ones, we see this more sort of dour, serious, kind of starting off negative kind of perspective, which we don't see in the Preserving Seven. Mm. The Tom Hanks character there was, you know, I mean, he was a a bouncy, you know, uh, positive sort of guy. 
But that focus on logistics was there, right? That focus on details, even to the degree, you know, he was keeping records of the winds in his cave and, you know, the tides and all that sort of stuff, right? Which served him well to get him off the island. One of the behaviors that I noticed in, uh, I mean, the contradicting behaviors, uh, the same way that I observed in, in, in my transmitting nine, I, I, the behavior that I see contradicting in preserving seven, that sometimes they are too much risk-taking and sometimes they are too much risk-averse. It depends yes. really on the situation. Yes, you're absolutely right, right? They they bounce back and forth, sort of ping pong between, you know, hey, let's do this crazy thing, you know, and oh, no, wait, we better not do this because, you know, it'll cost too much or I'll be too tired or, you know, whatever it is, right? So that's, that's a really good example. You know, it's funny, I think, too, that, um, you know, one of the things I think is important to point out here, since we're talking about perspectives on uh, subtypes, most of the Enneagram literature around subtypes tends to focus on relationships and how these things manifest in relationships, okay? And even, you know, they're, they're the preserving thing to some extent, right? So, uh, and, and what I mean by this is that, you know, or, or why I think this is, is because in self-help sort of environments, workshops on relationships really sell right? And that's what a lot of people want to talk about, okay? So the conversation is about relationships, and so the focus tends to be on what these things look like, okay? So um, what we see is a lot of preservers, and particularly preserving sevens, see themselves as a sexual seven sometimes, right? And because there's this idea of being a sexual or one-to-one seven, they the the preserving seven is just not really understood there is this need in the preserving seven for closeness to the significant other and again we see this in the tom hanks character with the uh wilson uh, wilson yeah Uh, yeah, absolutely (laughs) who became kind of a substitute for uh kelly right the helen hunt character anyway so there's a there's there's a lot going on here that can be really confusing for people when it comes to this. Yeah, I was also thinking about the Meryl Streep character in Defending Your Life, which I think we agreed that she might be a navigating seven. Yes. That's also, I think, a subtype that it's not always understood. Yes. And uh, many transmitting sevens see themselves as navigating sevens because they're very social. But um, the navigating seven is less of like a group, a big group person. But they have this light quality, and but they're not that talkative. So it's, I mean, not always, yes. not the center of the party. But right. if they're right. comfortable with you, they might talk a lot. But yes. it, it is a character that it's not always understood and many times mistyped. Absolutely right. This really is one of the Enneagram types that's deeply misunderstood, I think, and talked about in very, very stereotypical ways. I don't know that I don't know of any Enneagram authors that are sevens. I might be overlooking somebody, but I don't think anybody's really written about this a lot from the inside out. Uh, and that's not because sevens can't finish a book. It's, you know, it just is the way it is, right? I mean, the stereotype that sevens can't finish thing, you know, we've talked about a lot. It's just not the reality. Are you interested in learning more about our approach to the Enneagram? Go to awarenesstoaction.com and check out our certification program. We offer a clear, concise, business-friendly, and science-minded approach 
while maintaining the depth of traditional approaches to the system. At Awareness to Action International, we're the leading innovators in the theory and pragmatic applications of this system to all aspects of the work environment, including leadership and personal development, team building, diversity and culture, and managing change. However, this approach is not just for the business world. A lot of people who attend our trainings do so for their own self-development or spiritual growth. Our certification program is one of only a handful of curricula accredited as a school by the International Enneagram Association. It is currently being conducted virtually and combines live sessions with asynchronous learning. Again, find out more at awarenesstoaction.com. So the uh, so yes, I completely agree that the navigating seven often doesn't look seven ish. Very often confused as twos, and it's it's funny as we were talking about this, I was thinking about attending a uh, uh, somebody's session at an IEA conference one time where they were talking about the subtypes, and they used Hugh Hefner as an example of a preserving one. I'm sorry, preserving seven. Now, I don't know if you guys know who Hugh Hefner is, being outside of the U.S. So Hugh Hefner in the 1950s founded Playboy magazine, mm. right? Which no, is inaugural. No way he's a preserver. I mean, <laughs> what are you talking about? Not just because of what he did, but now that I can picture him in my mind, it just... <laughs> yeah. no. So let me finish my thought here, Maria Jose, and then you can jump on this idea some more, right? But the um, but so Hugh Hefner for for young people who might be listening, you know, he's he's kind of a person of the past. Started Playboy magazine, magazine, famous for publishing nude pictures of Marilyn Monroe in its first uh, episode, famous for nude magazines and the the uh, uh, say the libertarian lifestyle to a certain extent, right? Or the libertine lifestyle, uh, a better word. He had the Playboy Mansion in Los Angeles, which was a place where uh, Hollywood actors and actresses, mostly actors, I think, but some actresses as well, would go for parties on the weekends that would turn into orgies and all of these things, right? And, uh, you know, and then at the end of his life, while he was in his late 70s, early 80s, was married to three young blondes you know artificially enhanced women uh, who were you know 60 years younger than him or something right so yeah i'm sorry if you know if 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 there's not a better example of somebody who's a transmitter you know i i, I don't know what it is right but and, and there's people who think or thought that trump was a preserver yes uh, a preserving aid yeah. um yeah and again the archetypal transmitter right yeah. um you know yeah but uh, it, it's because they have resources they yes uh, accumulate resources and yes. we need to be really careful with that yeah i think one of the uh the justifications for um hefner being a trans i'm sorry a, a self-prez seven was that he liked to wear pajamas and didn't leave the house very often you know well you know, <laughs> yeah, <I> know. <laughs> why, why get dressed? <laughs> uh, well, yeah, right. so, so anyway, so again, it just points to when your first principles are not very clear. Yes, you're going to make bad conclusions about assessing type, right? So the first, you always have to pay attention to the first principle. Is this person preserving, navigating, or transmitting? And then what strategies at play? Okay, yeah, and I, was, and I was thinking about other stereotypes that may, might be confusing when you're trying to assess 
uh, a person. And uh, going back to the movies that we talked about, I was um, thinking about Almost Famous and how, mm -hmm. um, well, the Kate Hudson role, she it was a transmitting too. And yeah. she was kind of a helper, but not necessarily what she was. She was not going out of her way to make sure that everybody had what they needed. It was more of her agenda with a few people that she cared yes. about. And it's, it's not what we think as the helper. Yes. I think in her mind, she was helping people thrive or become famous or, but, but it was not the stereotype. So any subtype, not any, but many subtypes can be seen as a countertype or not the stereotype, but it depends on how you describe it. Yeah, yeah, for sure. So these some labels have an impact on that. If you yeah. call someone the helper, then if it's not helping, it's a countertype. Ab absolutely. Or, or things like that. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So one other example of kind of a contradictory character that I wanted to talk about was um, Charlotte from Lost in Translation, uh, played by Scarlett Johansson. Now, we identified her as a navigating four. And it's interesting, when I posted the um, description of that on social media, uh, there were some people in the Enneagram world who, you know, sort of attacked the assessment and the description of the movie as a fourish sort of movie because <laughs> the perception of these people was that fours are angry and venomous i mean this is the words they used angry and venomous and dark and all of these things and again that's a stereotypical understanding of the type based on one particular interpretation we often see that kind of behavior in more unhealthy fours and particularly more unhealthy transmitting fours but navigating fours have a different feel to them and you see that darkness you see that tendency toward kind of fairly extreme melancholy that they can sink into but most of the time they don't they certainly don't feel angry and venomous and you know and this speaks to i think for one of the reasons that so much of the stereotyping in the enneagram literature is that they're writing about people who are attracted to enneagram workshops and they're not out there working with people in the real world like the business world and so they don't see examples of, say, a navigating four. That's a pretty healthy person who's not so self-obsessed that they spend all their time in self-help workshops. Yeah, right? it's like a more functional version. A of, more functional version. Of the yeah. types, and of the subtypes, I think that. Yeah. Because it's self-selected, like yes. the, the audience that some people get exposed to. And right. the other people don't look for help. <laughs> right. right. Yeah. So the, the navigating four in our experience is kind of a, a more subtle four. Certainly, again, this melancholy and this desire to express their uniqueness or to find their own uniqueness. But they do it in a more in a way that allows them to fit in with other people more effectively. Now, sometimes that'll express itself by fitting in with a bunch of sort of outcast people, 
I think of, you know, people who join, you know, groups of, you know, uh, other misfit like goths, you know, for example, you know, you might see navigating force sort of join in with that crowd. But again, they're not going to be the angry, aggressive types that we'll see in, you know, some of the transmitting force. The preserving force, on the other hand, is, you know, I, I think you actually see sort of a darker quality in most preserving fours than you do in the navigating fours in my experience. Right? Yeah, in fact, so many times we see navigating fours confused as sevens. Sevens and yes. nines too, right? Yeah. Uh, I'll, I'll say, right? I mean, uh, and that's one of the things that these people criticizing me on Facebook were saying, no, you're talking about nines. No, you know, you're talking about navigating fours, right? So, you know, is, is, is my view. Were you going to say something, Tamer? No, I, mean, I see in, uh, the preserving four, uh, they have this grounded quality to, I mean, versus the, uh, sorry, the preserving four. I'm, I was talking about mm -hmm. the preserving, they have this uh, uh, grounded uh, quality uh, that makes them look not, not, not look like four uh, a lot. Right. So, yeah. yeah. On the surface, they, are, they often look kind of three-ish. Right. Yes. Um, appears sort of three ish, but then you see the melancholy set in, you know, in, in, in a uh, in a way that we don't see in threes. But, uh, but I, see, I see I see in the two dimensions the navigating and the four something common, which is the interest about identity. So somehow I see, I mean, although it's uh, contradicting uh, subtypes, but I see a common, I mean, uh, a stress on identity somehow. How how do you see mm -hmm. that? Yeah, so uh, I'm sorry, with the preserving four or the navigating um, four, the navigating four. Oh, absolutely. It's all about identity, right? It's all about who am I, right? Who am I? Where do I fit in? And what's wrong with me? I was watching a movie last night called Roxanne with Steve Martin, the, the uh, comedian and well, actor. I, I still think of him as a comedian from the 70s. But um, so it's a, the Roxanne is a movie, I don't know, late 80s, early, not probably late 80s. It's a takeoff on Cyrano de Bergerac, right? The guy with the big nose, okay? Who falls in love with the woman, but is embarrassed about the size of his nose. So he uh, helps another guy sort of court her. But Cyrano does all the writing of the poetry and whispers to the other guy who says the stuff to, to her and, you know, falls in love, et cetera. Right. So, but it, it was very much, you know, it's a four-ish kind of character, right? There's a great version of Cyrano de Bergerac with Gerard Depardieu from eighties or yeah, probably the eighties as well, but it's a very four-ish character. And the Steve Martin version, now Steve Martin, I think, is a four in real life, right? Very focused on the arts. He was an art collector, could even be a preserving four because of his, you know, focus on elegance and that sort of thing. And playing this character, but it was not an angry character, right? It was not this dark, you know, goth-like, you know, nine-inch nails sort of four-ish character that we might think of. It was a lighter, funnier four but with a darkness underneath them, this anger, this sorrow, this melancholy, right? But very personable on the surface. So it's a good movie. You should, uh, if you get a chance, you should add it to the list of movies to watch. Uh, Roxanne yeah. with Steve Martin and Daryl. I, I did. I did already. So. You've seen it? <laughs> so I will not watch it again. <laughs> 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 well, you know, like I always say, it wasn't Citizen Kane, but it was all right. Yeah. So, uh <laughs> Okay, so 
Yeah, so that uh, that kind of wraps up our our episode on the uh, the subtypes and uh, subtypes is an interesting uh, topic, and so we encourage people to go back and you know listen to other episodes and rewatch some of the movies to see these distinctions that we've talked about it will help deepen our understanding of the uh, subtypes. And I would recommend, and this is what we talk about in our trainings, that. Don't try too hard to identify which of the 27 subtypes someone is. Yeah. Take a look at the instinctual biases and see which one is more visible or kind of a primary. And then look at the nine strategies and see which one might be the preferred strategy and then make the combination. That is a, a safer way to assess someone's subtype effectively than trying to take a look at 27 options and choose one of those. Yeah, it, there's, it's, it's almost like a math problem, right? An addition problem, not even a multiplication problem. It's like a math problem. And once you figure out what the two main integers are, the question answers itself, right? If I find out that, you know, one thing is, you know, five, and I have to add it to four, I get, let's see, five plus four, carry the four, nine, right? So um, there's no real question about it, okay? We just uh, sort of, you know, okay, well, we know that they're preserving. We know that there are seven. That means they're preserving seven, okay? So just settle one problem, settle the next problem, and then the final solution answers itself. So next time on the Enneagram in a Movie podcast, we're going to go into a topic related to the Enneagram that we haven't talked about yet in our three or four years of doing this podcast, uh, the core qualities of the Enneagram types. So for us, the core qualities are a deeper dimension at what's at the heart of each of us and at what influences the expression of our Enneagram type. And we are going to look at the core qualities through the lens of one of the all-time great movie characters, an enduring uh, character who has entertained and thrilled and inspired generations of people, uh, Philadelphia's own Rocky Balboa. Okay, so we're going to take a look at uh, three of the Rocky movies. Okay, uh, we're going to take a look at the movie Rocky. We're going to then skip over Rocky II, Rocky III, Rocky IV, and Rocky V because they really, really suck. And we're going to talk about the movie Rocky Balboa from uh, the, I think, the early 2000s. And then we're going to talk about the movie Creed, um, which is um, not about Rocky, but it includes the character Rocky. And what we're going to show is how the character of Rocky shows the, um, the stunting of the three core qualities found at the inner triangle, the Enneagram, and how it shows the maturation of these qualities over time. So um, yeah, I'm a big fan of Rocky. You know, I don't know that we've talked about it on the show. Honestly, doing this podcast is just a chance of me to talk, for me to talk about Rocky, but I figured out a way to tie it to uh, one of the things we teach so that I got the chance to talk about Rocky. So as a Philadelphia boy, Rocky is really important to me and uh, looking forward to that episode. As are Maria, Jose, and Tamara, I'm sure. I am more than some of the other movies. And I think that although it could have been just a way for you to justify watching Rocky and discussing it, 
watching Rocky again, by the way. Uh, <laughs> again and again. <laughs> and yes. again and again. Uh, I saw Rocky in the movie theater in 1976, just so Wow, you know. when I was two years old. Uh, <laughs> so <laughs> it, it does show uh, the core qualities relevant for his type and the accelerators and you had what you said about the maturation of them in a brilliant way. So I'm yeah. looking forward to it as well. And also the character of Rocky, and one of the reasons it kind of got onto our radar uh, again, was because the character of Rocky is one of those subtypes that's contradictory, right? Mm -hmm. He's a transmitting nine character. Uh, so at times doesn't look like a nine at all, but at other times does. Okay? Yeah. So looking forward to that conversation and forward to seeing everybody again next week. See you guys. Talk soon. Bye. Bye. Thank you for listening to the Enneagram in a Movie podcast, part of the Awareness to Action podcast network. Find out more about the Enneagram and our offerings at awarenesstoaction.com. And if you enjoyed the episode, please go online and give us a review. We'll see you next time.